Even if you aren't done with your questions, it's okay. I'm going to get started. My name is Kathy, and I'm excited to be sharing with you this evening. This past week on foxnews.com, one day one of their top three um, news stories was titled um, about the country Iran. Iran arrests suspected converts to Christianity. And I want to read for you and share with you just a little bit from this article. It says, amid a growing crackdown on religious freedom, Iranian police reportedly have been rounding up people they suspect have converted to Christianity. They arrested eight specific people in a certain city, and it says, converting from Islam is a crime in Iran. Converse can face, converts can face jail and other penalties. Most of those detained have been released of that group, but one of them hadn't, and one person said he may not be willing to give up the names of the other Muslim converts. He may not be willing to recant his faith himself. Though they're protected under the Iranian constitutions, Christians are not given the same freedoms as other citizens in Iran. They can't worship freely or hold public office, and they can even be arrested for speaking to Muslims about Christianity. One person says, such people are persecuted, and particularly in the 1990s, such converts were killed, it's thought by the government officials. The Iranian government is even becoming more strict. The current president of Iran recently proposed a law that would impose a death sentence for any Muslim who converts to another religion. And I don't know about you, but when I hear stories like this or see images of people around the world, even today, while we are sitting here in our comfortable air-conditioned room, people who are persecuted and arrested and tortured and taken away from their families, um, I've seen pictures of children that have been burned, a lot of horrible things. And as I hear these stories and see these images, I have many of the responses that you probably have. At times, there's a little bit of anger. Um, shock, maybe sadness for them, for their family. Our emotions and our minds kind of get going. And I have to admit that as I, as I think about this, there's even two things that go a little deeper for me. Underneath the surface are lurking two questions. They don't always come out. And they may be questions you ask now or have asked in your life. But my, my guess is that you have at one point in your life thought one of these or both of these two things. And the first thing you may have thought when you hear stories like this is, what's the big deal? And by that I mean, what's the big deal with this whole Jesus guy? Why would anyone be willing to be persecuted and killed and taken away from their family? And if they were given the opportunity to recant, to just say they didn't believe and they could get out of prison, why wouldn't they? I mean, what's, I mean, what's the big deal about it? You may have thought that. You may be thinking that. You may be checking out Christianity and thinking, what's the big deal with this Jesus guy? The second question um, really actually gets me pretty significantly. And this question is loaded with a bunch of fear when it comes to my mind. Because every time I hear stories like that, when I dig underneath the surface of my heart, the question that comes to my mind is, what would I do? I mean, if that was me... What would I do? Would I choose to stay in the prison and be tortured and say I believe in Jesus, or would I not? I mean, I hope I would. But the reality is, I get frustrated when someone simply cuts me off in traffic. Or I don't have the guts to stand among a bunch of Christian girlfriends and say, you know, we might be gossiping, maybe we should talk about something else. 
and I'm grouchy after two days of being sick and staying in my house all day, or some of us not having our Starbucks coffee in the morning. I mean, if we're honest, can we admit? It's a scary thought. What would you do? And it's loaded for me with a significant amount of fear. What would I really do? Tonight we're going to look at both of those questions, and we're going to look at both of those questions through two things. Through the life of a lady named Esther on Kim, and through the book of Hebrews. If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and open to Hebrews chapter 10. We're not going to get to it for a little while, but just so it's ready, we'll be in verse 32 when we start. And I want to tell you a little bit about Esther. If you remember any of your history, in the early 1900s, Russia was over Korea Um, The Koreans did not like the Russians. They were not good to them. And Japan eventually went to war against Russia and took over Korea. The Koreans were hoping at this time that it would be kind of a big brother relationship with Japan and that things would improve. They quickly found out things would not. Japan also took over Manchuria. Then they went to war with China. And Korea was significant. There was no North and South Korea then. But it was significant because it was Japan's only overland route into both Manchuria and to China. And so they took any and everything in Korea that they wanted. They took over food. They took over facilities. They made everyone speak Japanese. They made everyone take a Japanese name. They made many of the young Koreans go work in war camps. It was not a good time. And during this time is when Esther was born. Her given name, which I'm sure I'm going to mispronounce, is actually An I Suk. She was born to a mother who was a Christian and to a father who was not a believer. Um, eventually her father took concubines and her mother left her father and they moved. When they got to where they moved, um, Esther indeed followed her mom's um, spiritual experience and did become a Christian. Her dad, however, had a significant influence over her education. And though her mom at times wanted to send her to Christian schools, her dad refused and said, no, she will go to schools where she learned the Japanese language very well. This will be significant in her journey. In addition to what the Japanese were doing with the Koreans, they also began to impose a whole lot of religious um, requirements. In fact, they built Shinto shrines in every city and in every village. There was a picture of the sun goddess as well, or an image of the sun goddess and a picture of the emperor of Japan. And they would make everyone go and bow before those images and before those idols. If you did not bow, you were immediately arrested. In 1939, Esther worked at a Christian school. She was a teacher there. And they would come, the Japanese officials would come to the school and they would take everyone up to the mountain to go and to bow before these idols. Esther, for a while, was able to get out of it, but eventually it became known that she was not going. And her principal came to her one day as the officials were coming to get everyone in the school to go. And she was frustrated with Esther And I want you to hear the words that she says to Esther. The principal says to her, You can see what great trouble you will cause this school if you fail to cooperate. But you don't seem to care about that. You are thinking only of yourself. Do you hear her basically asking Esther, Esther, what's the big deal? Just come and bow. Everybody else is doing it. What's the big deal? So Esther has to go. She goes with the crowd and she begins to walk up to Namsan Mountain. And as she walks, John 14, 6 comes into her mind, which says, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And she wonders, how am I going to go knowing that Jesus is the one God and bow before other idols? I can't do that. 
She remembers the Old Testament story in Daniel of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If you remember that story, King Nebuchadnezzar actually wanted them to bow before idols. And they said, we will not. Even if we die in the burning furnace, we will not bow before those idols. As Esther is walking up, these are, these are her words of what she was thinking to herself as she remembers Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. She says, even if God did not save them from the burning fire, they were saying they would die honoring him. I was going to make the same decision. With God's help, I would never bow before the Japanese idol. Even if God did not save me from the hands of the Japanese, I was saved by Jesus. I could bow only before God, the Father of my Savior. I felt as though I could already see the burning furnace yawning for me. While we walked, I was praying. I knew what I was going to do. Today on the mountain, before the large crowd, I told myself, I will proclaim that there is no other God besides you. This is what I will do for your holy name. She arrives at the mountain with the crowd, and she is fearful. She cries out to God, afraid she can't follow through on what she knows she needs to do and wants to do. And the Japanese officials then tell the crowd it's time to bow, and in unison, the large crowd bows, except for one. Esther stands and does not bow. They begin walking back to the school, and she knows what's coming. She knows she's going to be arrested. She knows she's going to be imprisoned. She knows she wants to be tortured. And it was interesting to me, as she's walking back to the school, knowing what's to come, she asks herself this question. Knowing the torture, knowing the imprisonment, knowing what's going to come, she says, what if I can't do it? In fact, the exact word she says, what if I gave up my faith underneath the relentless torture. She's afraid of the same thing we are. Day after day, month after month, year after year, depending on how long I'm in prison, am I going to continue to stand? What am I going to do? She arrives back at her school. There are four detectives waiting for her, and she is taken to be arrested. For whatever reason, they leave her alone in an office briefly for a short amount of time, and she's able to escape. She makes her way back to her family and begins a little bit of time on the run, but she knows she is going to be arrested and imprisoned and tortured. She knows that this is going to come even though she has a break. We're going to come back and I'll tell you some of the things that actually went on during that time. But eventually she meets a gentleman named Elder Park. Elder Park feels called of the Lord to warn the Japanese of what they are doing to the Koreans and of the fact that they need to repent and to believe in Christianity, to believe in Jesus. And he feels directed of the Lord that he needs to go warn the Japanese of this, that they need to repent. However, he does not speak Japanese well. And as you remember, we know an individual who does. Through God's sovereignty, Esther's father had put her in schools where she knew Japanese very well. And so she goes with Elder Park through a long series of events. They have amazing opportunities to speak to Japanese officials and eventually sneak in, unknown, um, to the Japanese legislature to deliver this message, which you can imagine how excited the Japanese were going to be to receive. As they delivered this message that Japan needs to repent of what they're doing to Korea and to repent of their false religion and to believe in Jesus, they are immediately arrested. And she is taken to what will be six years of imprisonment. As we talk about 
Esther, I don't just want to tell you the details of her story. I want you to get to little, know a little bit of her and why she did what she did. I'm going to spend a little bit more time answering the second question that I posed, but I want to talk for just a minute about why to Esther was this such a big deal. What was the big deal with this whole Jesus thing? Here's what she says. I am a believer in the gospel, which is a declaration of God's love. It teaches about sin and about salvation. And if that's a new concept to you, basically the idea is that God created a perfect world. He was in perfect relationship with us. We got to love and serve and know him, and then we became way too focused on ourselves. We messed it up, and we created the world in which we have now, the burden of our own sin which we carry, the bitterness, the war, all the things that are out there that messed up all the relationships in the world that it is. That's what Esther was talking about. She's talking about sin. And then she talked about salvation and how though we were lost, God determined to find us and to restore things to how they were, to relationships how they were, to we as we were before. And Jesus came and lived the example of the life that we were to live, died on the cross to pay the price for our sins, was resurrected from the dead so that we could be made whole again and have relationships the way they were, here partially on earth and then perfectly in heaven again one day. And Esther knew that access by that was through just believing in Jesus. That's what was a big deal to her. She says, I was saved from sin by Jesus. And for this reason, I am determined not to rebel against him, even to the extent of risking my life. She knew what she'd found in Jesus was better than anything she could ever have. And she had it, and any of us here can have it, simply by believing in Jesus. It was a big deal to her. It was more important to her than anything else, and she was willing to risk her life for it, because Jesus mattered more than anything else. In answer to the second question, how did she continue to do what she did? How did she day after day after day, in prison, being tortured, separated from her family, how did she continue to make that choice? What was the secret? On your outline, I've I've written it, and I want to read to you what I've written, and then I want to let you listen to her and listen to the book of Hebrews to see where that actually comes from. The secret is that you have to die. Esther had to die and live for heaven. Here's what I mean by that. These are her words. As she was walking from the mountain back to her classroom, even before she was arrested, here's what she said. She says, I am dead. I realized, on I sook, her given name, on I sook, died today in Mountain Namsan. Who she was, what she'd experienced, what she'd had before, the comfort she'd had before, the privilege, the life she'd had before, it was over. She died. Later on, she continues with this theme all throughout her story. She refers back to this death. Here's her talking to herself one time and what she says. She says, take the hands of Jesus firmly. Look up to him. Set your eyes on him, believing his word and trusting the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Since on Isaac is dead, you must not live by your emotions in the way in which the living do. She knew some things about this earth were done. She was dead to those. And she also knew something else, what she was living for. As she was imprisoned and went through all these things, here's how she remembers some things. Speaking of her prison cell, the filthy cell and floor with the putrid air seemed to be only a waiting room for heaven. 
and my heart danced with joy. I was happy and content. Another time, here's what she says. I must admit to feeling very sorry for myself. But as I tried to visualize heaven, joy surged in my heart. I would be among the disciples standing in front of Jesus. How wonderful it would be to see the Lord whom I had been serving in love. Ever since I put my trust in him to save me, my life and loyalty had been to him, though I'd never seen him. Now I was approaching the time when I would be able to look up at him with my own eyes in heaven, with Jesus, seeing him in a way she never had before. No pain. No tears. That's what she was living for. I want you to see in Hebrews as well this theme come out. Hebrews is actually a book that's written to persecuted Christians. And so there are some significant similarities between what Esther said and between what is said in the book of Hebrews. Again, I had you turn to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. I want you to begin to listen for some of these themes as we walk through some of these passages. But you recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partnered with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Why? Here's the why. Listen. Since you knew, you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. As we move on into chapter 11, it reminds us of some people that we've read about in the Bible in the Old Testament, some people who lived by great faith. It reminds us of Abel, reminds us of Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Enoch and Jacob and a number of people. And if you'll turn with me in chapter 11 to verse 13, I want you to listen to why it is these people did what they did. Why did they follow Jesus through suffering, through things that required great faith? These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. But having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They were strangers and exiles here. They were dead to hear. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. There's a homeland they're seeking. Verse 15. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. This is the key verse. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Why did they do what they did? They were dead to here. They were strangers and exiles to this place, and they were living for a city, for a promise that was to come. I'll read just a couple more verses in Hebrews and verse 13 verses 12 through 14 say, For Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. 
as God always does with me, and I'm glad he does. I don't ever get to teach on anything without God really teaching it to me in my own life. I do not ever want to teach on Job or First Peter because they're all about suffering. So, Deb, no, if you ever want to ask me to do that. So, as you can imagine, God has been graciously pointing out to me areas which I am not yet dead and reminding me that I need to be dead. Ah, Kath, you're not yet dead to uh, uh, what people think about you. You're not yet dead to that uh, revenge, anger, want to get back at people thing yet. Kath, you need to die to caring more about your name than you do about mine. You need to die to self-dependence, to the need to know, to plan, to control. Kath, you got to die to that. And he's also been teaching me a little bit about heaven. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm excited about heaven. And it's not that I never thought about it, but I never really considered it to be something that was kind of like a daily motivator to me. And it was interesting. If you were in high school, maybe you didn't in high school, I was in a public high school and we had to read a sermon by what I thought must be the scariest man in the world, a guy named Jonathan Edwards, because he wrote this sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And I thought, you are really enthralled with hell and I don't ever want to read anything else about you in my life. But as I've gotten to know a little bit more about him, I found that he was far more enthralled with heaven than he was with hell. In fact, it is said of him He actually said that he thought during his lifetime about heaven 20 minutes a day because that really helped him live a better Christian life. Now, this was a new concept to me, to let that really be a motivator. So I've tried. I have not done it 20 minutes a day and will not even begin to tell you that I have. But I've tried to, over the past month, like just during the day or what I'm doing, kind of think about heaven. And I've just wrote down the things I could remember. There are a lot more of this. Some of them may or may not make sense based on the situation I was in. But here's just my list of some of the ways teaching, thinking about heaven, even just the middle of who knows what, has impacted me. It's made me grateful. It's motivated me to tell people about Jesus. It's made me seek to know Jesus more now. It's made me smile. It's given me a great hope that there's a limit an end to pain. The relief that others who are hurting will be made whole. It's made grace seem very big to me. There was this morning, it was in the past week. I'd been awake for about an hour and a half. It was before nine in the morning. I hadn't even talked to anyone yet in my day. And I felt like I had just messed up any and everything imaginable, at least internally I felt like I had. And so I'm driving in my car, you know, trying to discipline myself to think about heaven. And I kind of, you know, turn my mind upward to heaven. And my first thought is, Kath, based on the past hour and a half in your life, what on planet Earth makes you think you're going to get to go there? I already knew that I was out based on the hour and a half that I'd had on that one day. And God reminded me, as I knew, I'm not going to heaven because of anything I've done. It's all because of Jesus. And it made grace seem absolutely huge to me. It's made me want to stay on the straight and narrow path. It's given me an increased love for Jesus. It's made me really excited that it's a group event. Other people are going too. It's not just me. It's going to be a party. It's going to be great. It's made me long for heaven and pray for Jesus' return. It's given me an internal rest because one day I'll feel at home and all this groaning and tension that I feel won't be there anymore. 
It's given me perspective so many times is in the middle of something, I've lifted my mind to heaven, and I've thought, okay, this thing I was just thinking about, does it really matter? It's made me stop worrying about whatever that was and give me peace. It's given me an attitude adjustment and joy in the midst of whatever it was. This is my small list of one trying to learn what it's like to daily live in light of the city that is to come. Now, as I reflected on Esther and thought a lot about her, there were three things that I think were really significant in enabling her to do this. And I want to share those with you as I've reflected on her life. Um, The first one really, in many ways, flowed out of a question that as I started to think about heaven, really started to weigh in my mind a lot. It was, in light of the fact I'm really excited about going to heaven, how do I will myself to stay here now? Like, why be here? Let's just go there. I mean, it's a, a question my heart really began to ask a lot. And the answer I want to give you from Esther's life and from the scriptures is, on your outline, it's to love others and to trust the wisdom and goodness of the God who's prepared the homeland. As we read in Philippians, Paul expresses the same thing in chapter 1, verses 21 through 25. He says, to live is Christ, but to die, now that's gain. He said, I'm hard-pressed from both directions. I desire to depart and be with Christ, for that's much better. But I know that to stay for your sake, for your progress in joining the faith, that's why I'm here. And Esther knew that. She had a purpose for here. She loved others. I could tell you crazy story after crazy story. In prison, that was her ministry. She shared Christ with and talked to and loved jailers and fellow prisoners and government officials that she influenced all the way. She loved others. That was her purpose. That kept her here. She used where she was to influence the people around her. And I think we also have to trust and she did, the wisdom and the goodness of the God who's left us here for now. God knows what we need and when we need it, and he's going to make it happen. If he's got us here now, it's the best thing for us for today. He knows what we need now. He knows what it'll be like in eternity. And we trust the wisdom and the goodness of the God who's preparing the homeland, and who knows exactly what you need. When it's time for you to go, you're going to go. And when it's time for you to be here, you're here because he loves you and because he's good. Esther knew that. The second thing Esther did, I got to tell you, this one amazes me. She prepared. I told you I was going to come back to that time in her life in between when she was arrested the first time and when she was arrested the second time. Now, for me, I can imagine what I would be doing during that time is eating as much chocolate I could find and finding as much comfort as I could find. But that's not what she did. She knew she was going to prison. She knew she was going to be tortured, and she wanted to be ready. She began to live in strict poverty. She would go to the market and buy the spoiled food so that she would eat it so that her body could adjust and be ready for the rotten food that she was going to get in prison. She would sleep on the cold ground so that she would be ready. She talked to other people that had been in prison and tortured so she would be ready. She memorized chapters and chapters of scripture because she knew she would not have her Bible. Over a hundred chapters of important scripture she memorized so she would have the word of God with her. I cannot tell you what it's like to read her autobiography. The scriptures were 100% without a doubt the most significant part of her making it. She, scripture came to mind and guided her at every turn almost. 
it was the most significant part of her journey. She also memorized a lot of hymns so that she would have them with her when she was in prison. She got ready. My question for us is, are we ready? Are you prepared? Even for little things. Moms, are you spiritually prepared to have your kids at home with you all summer? (laughs) Are we all prepared to walk into the grocery store and follow Jesus? You struggle with food. You walk through the line and you see the pictures and the bodies of the women that I don't look a thing alike. Are you, are you ready for that? Are you spiritually prepared to respond to that? Do you know enough scripture to be able to handle going to the grocery store? Are you ready for the vision, for whatever God calls you to? Are you preparing to follow him in whatever it is he's calling you to? Are you prepared for the times of hard times and suffering that you will have if you haven't already? Do you know what God's word says about suffering? Do you know some of his promises well enough so when that time comes you're ready? I know that for me, oftentimes in emotional moments, I'm not thinking real clearly. So I have picked out in advance, I've had this for years, a psalm that I can go to when I'm happy, a psalm that I can go to when I'm sad, and a proverb I can go to when I need wisdom. I don't always go there because sometimes something else comes to mind. But if nothing does, which sometimes it doesn't, I've got a place to go. I'm ready. I recently got to start discipling a couple of young women in their early 20s, and we've just met a few times, but I can tell you, hands down, the thing that has influenced them most significantly is the scripture that I've asked them to memorize. They come back every week, and I don't just make them say it to me. I say, now, how did God use it? And they've got story after story of how God brought that scripture to mind and has enabled them to use it, and it's because they memorized it, and they were prepared, and they were ready. Are you ready? Are we ready? Are we preparing with the time we have? (laughs) i got to read this one thing because when I read this about Esther, I thought, you are kidding me. She was so prepared and so disciplined. She says this sentence in passing in a part of her book, and I thought, oh, my goodness. She's in prison one day, and it says, at 3 in the morning, I woke up as usual. My prayer time was so regular that I would not need to see a clock. Can you imagine Every morning in prison, waking up at 3 o'clock with clockwork to pray. Uh, I'm not quite that prepared. Now, one thing I don't want you to do is this. It is real easy right now to have Esther on this pedestal. She's perfect, and she almost seems so perfect, we could treat her as irrelevant. She's not like us. We don't relate to her. And I'll tell you this next point was one of my most favorite things about Esther, and it's something she knew and she did. When I read her, someone had written a biography of her, and when I read that, I put her on a pedestal. I kind of felt like she was up there. And when I read her autobiography, the book she had written, I didn't put her up there because she was incredibly, incredibly humble and candid about her sin and her weakness. And something she did, the third point on your outline, is she uncovered her weakness We have to uncover our weakness and beg for God. I want to read you what she wrote. She's, again, in prison during one time of torture. And she says, I pleaded with God to take away my senses and to let me die. Surely if I had been a strong Christian, a miracle would have occurred to take away the pain. Or I would have been given the strength to bear it calmly. In my desperate prayer, I was complaining. Realizing my weakness, I became afraid. I thought I had faith, but did I really have it? Or was I just deceiving myself? Would Jesus forsake such a sinful person? Was I a valueless, sinful child of no concern to God? I was confused. 
because of the excruciating pain I could not recite any scripture. Sometimes I think we're tempted to put on this face, on this mask with God. I was talking with someone a few weeks ago and they were saying something to me and they were like, yeah, I was trying to decide what I was going to tell God. And in my mind I thought, what is it you think he doesn't know? (laughs) We laugh, but we do it. We go before God with our I've got it together happy smiley face and you and he both know that's not what's going on. We walk into church and we put on our happy smiley mask. Everything's fine. We're here at church. We're all good Christians. None of us have sinned today, right? Just so you know, you're at a church that believes the Bible is inerrant and the Bible says that we're all weak and sinful and needy. There's no need for a face here. I think we can all have lots and lots of stories of what happens when we're unwilling to uncover our weakness and beg for God and when we act like we've got it all together. How well does it go with you when you do it all by yourself? It doesn't go well with me. I don't follow Jesus. I don't make the decision when I walk around before God or before other people with my face on. Even years afterwards, I'm reading her story, and she's being open with me, this person she's never met about her sinfulness, her weakness, and her need. She uncovered it, and she begged for God. On the back of your outline, I've copied something for you, just for you to look at at home, that I think is very um, insightful. The biography that I read um, has actually five different um, people in it, but by Noelle Piper. It's called Faithful Women and Their Extraordinary God. And she runs through and explains kind of this process that happens to Esther throughout Esther's life, how she'll... God will call her to something, she'll remember an example, she'll have confidence, she'll pray, then she'll feel weak again, she'll go back to God and beg again, and I think we can all relate to rarely do you make a decision to be faithful for God and then it's easy from that point on, and I just encourage you to look back through it because I think it really shows this process of of uncovering our weakness, begging for God, and giving us a promise and confidence, we walking on, but yet we go back again because we're weak and we're needy and God's so gracious And he meets us again. I also put on there, in case you're ever interested to read more of Esther's story, her autobiography is called If I Perish. And I certainly would recommend it to you. On August 15th um, of 1945, Japan surrendered at the end of World War II, an unconditional surrender. And two days later, Esther and 13 other prisoners with her were released from prison. And I want you to hear what the jailer said as he shouted to the people outside as these prisoners were released ladies and gentlemen these are the ones who for six long years refused to worship Japanese idols they fought against severe torture hunger and cold and have went out without bowing their heads to the idol worship of Japan today they are champions of the faith Esther is a Hebrews 11 woman because she lived as a stranger and an exile here. She died to the things of here because she was living for the promise of the hope that was to come. So by God's grace, she made it. By God's grace, we, and God's grace alone, I think we'd all say, we will be women who choose day after day, one decision after one decision, to die to the things of here, being a stranger and an exile to here, and living for the homeland that is to come.
as Esther did, so that people will know, the world will know, that Jesus alone, alone is the way, the truth, and the life. And that on the mountains in our lives, it won't be Namsan Mountain. People will know the value of his name. If you will um, bow in prayer, I'm going to pray for us. But um, as we start off the prayer, I'm actually going to read for you some... um, verses from Revelation that are about heaven. And I would encourage you, I won't ask you to think about heaven for 20 minutes every day this week, but I would love for you to think about heaven for 20 minutes this week. If it's one minute here and three minutes there, that's fine. Or if it's five minutes and 10 minutes, that's fine. I would just love for you to join me in learning what it means to really die to hear and live for heaven. If you're bow your heads, I'll pray. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Jesus, we cannot wait for that. I cannot wait for that. For the former things of here, for this place which you've given us for now, but is not our home, to pass away and for us to come home and to be with you and to see you like we never have. God, I ask that Jesus would return today. Father, I would love for you to send him back. But for as long as your wisdom and your goodness has seen fit to put us here, we know We should not and cannot argue for you love us way too much to have us in a place for today that you don't want us to be. So would you make us women who learn to really die to the things of here, to live as strangers and exiles here, longing and looking for the promised city, the heaven that is to come, the place where we will see and know and experience you, Jesus, in a way we have never before. How great is your grace. It's in your sweet name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.